Friends, we're going to be in Philippians 1. It's in the New Testament. Verses 12 through 19, which Phoebe just read for us. And as we turn there, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. In the mini-series Band of Brothers, we follow um, Easy Company, a group of paratroopers, during their tour during World War II. And their tour begins when they are to be flown in by nightfall into France on the eve of D-Day. And before they leave, they're flying in from Dover in England. Before they fly over to France, they are to study maps of where they're headed and know by heart the coordinates of where they'll be dropped. This is key. They're going in in the wee hours of the morning. But as the planes are flying them in, the planes come under heavy artillery fire and chaos ensues. Planes are getting blown up. They have to veer off course. They're lower than they want to be. And they just have to drop the men. And so the men end up falling into France far off the mark of where they thought they were going to be. And as they're descending, many of them lose equipment. It just falls off. And so here they are landing in the dark of night in a foreign land during wartime, and they don't know where they are. So they're popping up, and, and little by little, they're wandering around in the woods, they're ducking through meadows, and they start to find one another. And eventually, they find Lieutenant Winters, who will emerge as their great leader as their tour goes on. And together uh, with them, Winters finds a map, he finds a few road signs, and they huddle together. They get under a little tarp with a flashlight and look at the map with a compass, and Winters is able to locate where they are. Ah, we're here. Okay. But then, being the good leader he is, he's able to map out where they were supposed to be. They're several miles away. How they'll get there, and once they're there, to remind them that their objective is to march towards a set of guns along the beach and to take them out. So now, their circumstances haven't changed at all. They're still in the black of night, they're in a foreign land, they're in wartime, and yet at the same time, everything's different. They know where they are, they know where they're headed, and they know why they're there. We all have an inborn need to understand our circumstances, to know where we are, where we're headed, and why we're there. To not understand your circumstances, uh, where you currently live, why you're in the job you're in, your relational status, your sorrows and suffering, to have these circumstances, everything surrounding you, to have them happening and not understand them, to not know where you are or why you're there is to feel lost and aimless. It's a horrible feeling. We have an inboard need to know where we are and why we're there. And Christians, Christians have a unique invitation, I think, to not only understand their coordinates, but learn the skill of helping themselves and others find out where they are. 
Christians have an opportunity to understand their circumstances, to decipher their location according to the map of divine providence. And this is precisely what Paul will model for us in our next section from Philippians. So Paul begins the letter of Philippians following the normal pattern of an ancient letter. Verses 1 through 11 is a greeting, a salutation, followed by prayers and thanksgiving. We saw this last week. But in verse 12, from verse 12 of chapter 1 through verse 26, Paul then turns to a personal update. You can see it in verse 12. He says, the things that happened to me. He's going to talk about himself for 15 verses. Then in verse 27, he'll move on into specific instructions for them. But here, as the case with all ancient letters, the author stops and he says, you wonder how I'm doing. And of course the Philippians do. Paul planted this church 12 years before. Paul was their apostle, their founder. They want to know how he's doing. They've heard he's been imprisoned. So they sent Epaphroditus to Paul. He brings Paul a letter. Paul then writes a letter back and he's going to send Epaphroditus to deliver it. And as they're reading it, you can picture him, sit with them there. They get to the sentence in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me, dot, dot, dot. And this is what Paul will do in our passage today. He will take what has happened to him, which looks like a train wreck to the Philippians. It looks like Paul, as you'll see, is way off course, totally away from the coordinates where he's supposed to be. And he's going to relocate his circumstances according to the map of divine providence. And by doing so, teach us all how we too can find out where we are and why we're there. I'm going to walk us through this passage, looking at how Paul understands his circumstances. And I'm going to do this by looking at three features of his circumstances. This is just how he moves through. He begins in verses 12 through 14 with his circumstance of confinement. Then he moves in verses 15 through 18 to the circumstance of petty competition. He looks around himself and talks about his competitors. Then from verses 19 through 26, Paul drops into the deepest, most important circumstance that is always there, rarely dealt with good enough, the circumstance of life and death. So first, where is Paul? What happened to him? The circumstance of confinement. So what happened to Paul? I mean, this is what he's going to talk about in verse 12. What happened to him? Well, what happened to Paul, simply put, is imprisonment. He mentions it in verse 13. He's mentioned it earlier in the letter. He'll mention it again in this section. And so Paul gives us a couple clues about this imprisonment. He doesn't tell us the name of the city he's in, but I think he gives us a lot of clues. Maybe you can figure it out with me. Paul begins in verse 12, moving into verse 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Picking up at verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Let me just pause there, okay? This is our first clue. Imperial guard. This could also be rendered the praetorian. The imperial guard were the elite soldiers trained to guard Caesar. Imperial guard, you're going to start thinking Rome. Then later in the letter, the very end, in chapter 4, verse 22, when he's giving final greetings, he says, all the brothers and sisters greet you, and in somewhat cheekily of a manner, he says, as do the members of Caesar's household. He's got to have his chest out when he says that. He's in Rome, it seems that way. 
Now, what kind of imprisonment is he in? You know, not all imprisonments are the same, especially in the ancient world. They didn't have penitentiaries. They weren't trying to rehabilitate people. You could be in a dungeon. You could be um, as a prisoner sent into forced labor. You also could be on house arrest, awaiting trial. That's probably the case that Paul finds himself in. He's a Roman citizen. He's made an appeal to Caesar. He's been arrested, but he's made an appeal to Caesar. So he's been brought to Rome and he's going to go before a tribunal and present his case to Caesar. So on house arrest, Paul's probably rented a room. Um, He's living on his own, but he's always got a guard with him. We know he's not alone because he opens the letters with greetings, not just from Paul, but from Paul and Timothy. And we know that Epaphroditus, chapter 3 and 4, is able to visit with him. So Paul's on house arrest. Now, house arrest for Paul means that he's awaiting trial. And his trial, he knows, could mean a possible execution. So this is why you begin to to feel the theme of life or death come up in the passage. So, for example, he finally goes on to say in verse 20 that his hope is that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. He says that because he knows this could go either way. He's hopeful he'll be delivered. So, to sum all this up, this is Paul's circumstance, confinement. Now, remember what Paul is. Paul is a missionary. His whole job depends on the freedom to move where he wants to move, where the Spirit leads. He is in the opposite circumstance he needs to be to fulfill his calling. He's been chained. He would have been personally chained to a Roman soldier and led about. And now he's sitting in a house that he can't leave. He can't go out and share the gospel. So you would think that Paul finds himself way off the map. And this is where he turns his circumstances on their head. And he says, no, no, Philippians, let me show you how to read your circumstance, not on the map of your perception, but on the map of divine providence. And so he goes on to speak of the fact that through his imprisonment, the whole imperial guard has come to know that he's there because of Jesus. Now think about this with me for a moment. Paul planted little tiny churches. He was not a famous religious leader or a powerful man. He planted little churches of motley crews of Jews and Gentiles, right? So would Paul have ever expected, what are the chances he would think that one of the elite imperial guards, a strapping young centurion, would just decide on the Lord's day that he was feeling lonely and he wanted to be caught with this weird group of Jews and Gentiles worshiping a crucified Lord? It's not going to happen. They're not going to show up at Lydia's house. How do you reach the Roman elite? And that's where Paul finds out, oh my goodness. They wouldn't come to church, but God brought church to them. You see, in house arrest, Paul would have been constantly chained to an imperial guard. These guards would have rotated out hour by hour. So in the course of 24 hours, day and night, you could have had a dozen or two dozen different guards rotate through. And they would have been chained just a few feet away from Paul. Now, what do you think Paul did when he had a centurion sitting next to him? Paul's a broken record. He just keeps explaining the gospel. And these young men would be fascinated because they would realize, well, this guy's actually brilliant. He knows Greek. He knows Hebrew. I can't tell if he's a Jew or a Gentile. He's read all the Roman poets. He's two steps ahead of me with his Roman history. He's a Roman citizen. And Paul would explain to them, listen, I'm here 
You're going to think this is crazy because you're working for the peace of Rome and I believe there's a peace that runs deeper than that. I believe there's one true God. He sent his only son and that he loves you, centurion. He probably learned his name and he died for you and he wants to apply the balm of forgiveness to your very soul. He knows your name. I'm willing to die for this man. His name's Jesus Christ. And Paul says, interestingly, in verse 13, do you notice this? He says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Historians think there were about 9,000 members of this specific unit in the first century in Rome. Now, Paul may be using a little bit of hyperbole, but think about it. Let's say he's there two years. They're, they're coming in and out, and then they talk among themselves. Have you met the, the prisoner, Paul? I mean, he's kind of crazy, but he's also kind of brilliant, I, just, I love it when I get chained to him. <laughs> here's, the first, here's the first lesson. Lesson one. Confining circumstances may mean strategic placement. When you feel confined in your circumstances, like you are completely outside the map where you think you're supposed to be, you need to ask the question if it is not a strategic placement. When you go through a hard circumstance, Christians know there's multiple things that could be happening. God could be teaching you a virtue, patience. God could be correcting you and disciplining you. We often think of these things, but less often do we think God may strategically have you behind enemy lines. You see, Paul is not a prisoner in a Roman house arrest. Paul is a Trojan horse in the imperial city. So who does God have chained to you? You feel confined to home as you watch your little children. Maybe God has you there because your calling is to teach them the gospel. You feel confined by a job you don't like. Maybe you are there because there's a coworker you will invite to church who never would have a shot at coming unless you were there. Maybe you feel confined to your public school. You wish you were at a Christian school with Christian friends. Every one of your friends is secular. Maybe that's on purpose. Confinement, confining circumstances may be strategic placement. God's people are where they are by divine appointment. That's the first lesson. There's a second that comes out of Paul's confinement. He's realized that not only is this having an impact on the Romans, it's having an impact on other Christians, and it's actually making them more bold. So here's what he says in verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Lesson two. Boldness is contagious. Paul's not suffering by accident. Paul's suffering to give us a backbone. Do you know that courage and boldness are contagious? When, when I was growing up, I had a little posse of friends. There were four of us. We met in second grade. We were friends all the way through high school, four boys. We did everything together. And there was one among us that stood out as someone who was much more bold. His name was Justin. And 
when uh, it was the season of going to the pool a lot, when we were little, Justin was the first to try a backflip. When we went to Racetown Lake and we walked up to the infamous 30-foot cliffs and looked over, trembling, it was Justin who sprinted and threw himself off. When we started skateboarding in middle school and we found out about the eight-foot wall behind the local gas station, it was Justin who flew across the parking lot and tried to ollie it. And you know, something funny happened every time Justin went first. He would bang himself up. He'd land on his stomach doing the backflip. He'd wreck trying to ollie. And he'd pop up with a smile on his face that basically said, that was awesome. It's not that bad. We can do it. You'll survive it. And in every case, every one of us, every rest of us, all the rest of us would do it. Justin's boldness made us bold. That's what Paul is doing in Rome. He's going first. He's saying, you can risk for the Lord. You can risk for the Lord and you can lose all this stuff you think you need. You can risk for the Lord and get thrown off course and you'll be okay. Even if you end up in prison, facing execution. He's saying, wake up, don't be afraid. You can do this. And he gives the timid just a little bit more of a backbone. I wonder if you're bold. Most of us aren't by temperament. Um, I wonder if you know that your own boldness, even in small steps, could be the spark that ignites boldness in your family or in your small group or even in your church. That's lesson two from Paul's circumstances. Don't feel sorry for me, he says. My boldness on display through imprisonment, it's lighting the church on fire and they can't stop preaching. So that's the circumstance of confinement. He repositions it on the map of God's work and God's providence. Second, he turns to the circumstance of petty competition. And with this, he talks about people in Rome that are starting to preach the gospel out of bad motives. So you'll notice in verse 14, he says, by my imprisonment, the, many of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word, right? So you picture a bunch of people speaking the word more boldly. But then in verse 15, he goes on to say that they're not all doing it out of good motives. So verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, seeking to inflict me in my imprisonment. Now, Paul's introducing us to a very important category of Christians here. Biblically sound, theologically solid Christians who do ministry out of selfish ambition and rivalry. Paul is not talking about heretics here. He's not talking about people going around preaching a false gospel. When Paul wants to point out false preachers, he uses different language, which he does over in Ephesians 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Meaning, watch out for those who preach the gospel of Jesus plus needing to keep all these other laws in order to be saved. So Paul is not talking about that here. He's talking about biblically orthodox preachers. They're simply going about their ministry for selfish reasons. You know, motives, motives are like icebergs. A lot more lies out of sight than above water. You know, this, this part of this passage nails me because I'm competitive. 
I was a basketball coach before I went into ministry and when I was coaching, I wanted to win. When I took over a church, I wanted to win. And what can happen, see if you can see this in your heart at all, is well-meaning Christians who all agree on the gospel end up with different, differing opinions. Well, you know, we prefer traditional music over contemporary. We like the hymns. You know, we prefer liturgy. You know, we think you should emphasize this doctrine over that doctrine. And subtly, as these groups organize, they become rivals. Have you ever seen this? For the same gospel, they compete with each other. They wanna see the other diminish while they increase. The amazing thing about Paul here is he looks at this and says, who cares? Who cares? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. You see what he's doing is he's putting himself on the map of God's broader economy. And he's realizing, guys, we're in the army and we don't like the guys in the Navy, but we're both fighting the same battle. We're on the same team. So they want to undermine me. So they hope my church doesn't make it. So they're jealous that I wrote the letter to the Romans, which he'd already written at this time. So they think I'm here to fundraise. They're preaching the gospel. They make jokes about me behind my back. I'm short. I'm not that eloquent like the Corinthians did. He said, who cares? Lesson three. When we care more about the glory of Christ than our own glory, our Christian competition turns out to be our teammates. They turn out to be our teammates. We're working together. Of course, this is not an invitation to have selfish motives. It's an invitation to not take ourselves so seriously. Friends, if there's churches you feel like you compete with or we compete, or ministries within this church where you're thinking they're grabbing for time, number one, know that's natural. Number two, confess your sins. And number three, rejoice. Rejoice that anybody believes in Jesus in this modern post-Christian world and they're showing up to church and they're trying to serve people. That's the second circumstance, the circumstance of petty competition. Doesn't bother Paul anymore. He's too mature for that. Third, there's a third circumstance, and with this, Paul, Paul drops underneath everything else, and this is the circumstance of life and death. And we see this come up in verse 19 when Paul begins to turn to the future. So he's talked about the things currently happening to him. And from verses 19 to 26, he pivots ahead. All the verbs are future. So he said at the end of verse 18, I will, he said at the end of of verse 18, "I, I rejoice. And then he goes on to say, and I will rejoice. And as he looks to the future, he has to deal with his immediate future and the future beyond that. And his immediate future is this trial which brings him face to face with the question of life and death. Now, Paul thinks he probably will be delivered. You can feel the confidence in some of the verses. I know this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope. But when you really press into what he's saying, you realize he's not completely sure. How could he be? Trials can go all over the place. So you hear him in verse 20, when he finally says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Here's the key, whether 
by life or by death. He can't fully know what will happen, whether by my life or by my death. Now, life and death circumstances, more than any other circumstances, force us to take stock. Maybe some of you are in a life or death circumstance. You may have a terminal diagnosis. The doctor's given you months or years. Maybe you've just been in a near-death experience, a car accident. Many of us have never been in a life or death situation where it's been as in front of us as it is for Paul. But it forces some soul searching. What has my life been about? Has my life meant anything? Did I live for any purpose? What happens when I die? Friend, if you're here and you're not a believer, I wonder how you answer these questions. And I want you to listen closely to see how the author of 13 letters in the New Testament, Paul, I want you to see how he answers these. Because friend, listen, life and death, that really is your circumstance. It's all of our circumstances. Beneath all the other circumstances, where are you? You're between life and death. Where are you headed? Towards death. All of us, you're born, you're going to die. This is the circumstance that every woman and every man at some point has to stare in the face. Now, Paul, because it's right in front of him, it leads to introspection. So verses 20 through 23 almost feel like a soliloquy. He's reflecting, what's going to happen to me? And in the midst of all this, you can see him writing, can't you? Reflecting, probably stopping to pray. And he's probably thinking, Lord, what do I tell the Philippians? I want to comfort them the same way you want to comfort a child. I want to tell them everything will be okay, but I can't lie to them. It probably will be okay, but you need to know that I face death very differently. And so in the midst of this reflection, he writes what has become one of the most treasured Bible verses for many Christians. It's verse 21 when he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now you have to imagine yourself as one of the Philippians reading this. You love this man. You want him to make it. What is he trying to say to you? I wonder how you would fill out that sentence. If we brought you up here, we hooked you to a lie detector, and we said, fill in the blank, for me to live is what? What would you say? Or I wonder if we asked you, is it true, Christian, for you like it is for Paul, that to die is gain? Here's how Paul understands these two realities. For Paul, as he thinks about this, death for him has become a chauffeur, a butler. It's simply there to carry him along a passage to be with Christ. That's all it is. He has no fear of it. And he knows that when he dies, his passage to be with the Lord is immediate. There's no purgatory. There's no pause of preparation. Notice what he says in verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's immediate. Just like Jesus says to the thief of the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Paul says this is far better. Death is my butler to walk me into his presence. I welcome him. I long for him to come and take me. 
Now, when Paul says this, he doesn't mean by saying heaven with Jesus is far better, he doesn't mean that the joys of this life aren't amazing. He simply means in comparison. In comparison, when we are there and we look back, we will realize this wasn't it. This wasn't what we were ultimately made for. With these bodies that fall apart and break down and age, with these hearts that get broken, with the sin that goes around and wrecks people's lives, with the confusion we have, with the statecraft and the games we play, we'll be there with the Lord and we'll realize this glory is not worth comparing to the sorrows that we used to feel. That's all Paul is saying. And every Christian in any circumstance can say this definitively, that the best is yet to come and come it will. That's what Paul means when he says, to die is gain. But notice how he explains life at the beginning of the sentence. For to me, to live is Christ. Now, a literal, a literal rendering of what Paul writes there in the fancy original language is, for to me, to live Christ. There's no verb. It's not to live is Christ. It's just for me to live Christ. I mean, Christ totally subsumes what Paul means by life. Now, this is an interesting idea. What does it mean? Well, it certainly means Paul has been called in a unique way to serve Jesus, that he knows his purpose in life is to be on mission for Jesus. So if he lives, it will mean he'll go on serving Jesus. He'll go to see the Philippians. He'll encourage them in their faith. Maybe he'll make it to Spain as a missionary. But it means more than that. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is his boss guiding him. It means Jesus is his friend, the lover of his soul. Jesus has checkmated Paul. He's commandeered him. He's overtaken him. He has arrested him, and he has become his very life. It is not that there is the Paul who has his Jesus. It's Jesus who has his Paul. It's not Sam who has his Lord that he carries around, that he brings out of the cupboard when he wants to pray. It's that the Lord has his Sam. And Sam goes wherever the Lord wants. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you, do you see how countercultural this is? The culture tells you that your most important circumstance is yourself. You have to look within. You have to find out who you are and love that person. And the culture tells you that your most important journey is expressing your true self. Do you know the problem with that? If you're honest, is it not the case that for so many of us, our most trying circumstance is ourself? It's like the one thing you can't ever get away from is you. Your worries, your fears, your scars, your frailty, your dying body. You can go anywhere on the map and you always bring you. Do you see what Paul does here is he said, no, there's a circumstance that's deeper than myself. It's the circumstance of Jesus. And here then is the fourth and final lesson about how a Christian understands where they are, and it is the most important. 
Your most important circumstance is Christ. He is where you are. He is why you are there. He is where you are headed. He is before you and behind you and within you. And for Paul, to be with Christ is to be home. It's always to be exactly where he is supposed to be. Don't put me anywhere on the map, Paul says, if it's not in Christ. I don't care if it's a dungeon. I don't care if it's on the high seas. I don't care if it's walking the dozens of miles between European cities getting beaten. I don't care if it's in the Colosseum. I don't care if it's a nice domestic life. Give me Christ. That's where I want to be. He is my home. You know, the only analogy I can think that captures the feeling of this, I think, for Paul would be the analogy of a really loving, really long marriage where a man and a woman meeting in their late teens, marrying in their early 20s, spend 50, 60, 70 years side by side, utterly united, sharing in the joy of children, sharing in sorrow, sharing their minds, sharing their lives. And, and the husband comes to say, where she is, is my home. I am not myself without her. And she comes to say, to know me, you have to know him. And this is precisely the image Paul gives us in Ephesians when he says, what is it like to have Christ love you? It's like the love of a husband for a wife. We are one. Where is Paul on the map? Paul is in Christ. So there is the apostle relocating himself and the Philippians and us in terms of how we interpret our circumstances. Let me close with an image to try to bring all this together. A vivid image, at least it's vivid to me. I lived in New England for three years and in New England in the fall, the foliage is breathtaking. And um, it's, it's, a, it's neon red and, and orange and yellow and where I lived, I would often drive past a towering old oak tree that stood alone in a sprawling field. And at times in the summer and in the fall, it was so beautiful, I would stop and take pictures of it. Just one of those trees, you almost felt like you needed to salute. And it was beautiful. It was crowned in the fall by these leaves. But then the New England winter came and it pulverized that tree. It killed everything every single leaf. It didn't leave one. It killed the grass and snow would cover the field and that tree would look dead, almost black against the snow. But if you looked at it long enough, it would begin to appear with a whole different type of beauty. Because you see, all the winter did was reveal to the eye what the tree always was. The leaves, they come and go season by season, but that trunk upholding those branches far into the sky, stately in its stride, unflinching in front of the New England icy air. That tree was alive. Its roots pushed deep into the soil drinking nutrients. And it was as though it was saying, this is who I always am. That is Paul when he writes Philippians. 
The summer is long past. The leaves of earthly blessings have fallen. Winter has come. He says, this is all I am. I have no hope in this life. And you see him stripped bare, looking like he's about to die. But when you look closely, you begin to see the apostle. Strong, dark, against the snow, against the concrete of the imperial city. And if you look close enough at the silhouette that appears as everything fades away, you begin to see the silhouette of none other than Jesus Christ. Because he's with Paul, he's beside Paul, he is in Paul. And Jesus is Paul's circumstance. Therefore he can say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, as a country, we honor our veterans. As Christians, we honor our saints. And we glory in the legacy of Paul. Many of us don't have his courage or temperament. But, oh God, by your spirit, may we be like this man. And I pray for each individual here that you would help us locate ourselves on your map. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.